like to draw your attention to God's Word as we find it in the closing section of Acts 15, the 15th chapter of Luke's narrative. We'll be reading from verses 36 to 41. Acts 15, verses 36 through 41. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, triune God, we come before you with fear and trembling. For we have come to commune with the all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing, eternal creator and sustainer and Lord of all things. Father, we do not come arrogantly thinking that we have any right to be here. We come with great humility. We come knowing that it's only because of your grace your gracious calling of us to yourself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we can come. But we also come confidently because of Christ. We come expectantly. We come joyously. And we ask that you would now communicate yourself to us by your word. Spirit, use your word powerfully in our midst, we pray, so that you, along with the Son and the Father, may be exalted as you have been in eternity past and will be forevermore, world without end. Amen. Well, as a gospel minister, hopefully this doesn't come as a surprise to you, but one of my primary responsibilities is to make a lifelong, diligent study of the Holy Scriptures, the Word of God, so that I am then able to teach the whole counsel of God and refute those who contradict. Any gospel minister who is called by Christ, by the Holy Spirit, has that responsibility to study the Scriptures. And one of the things that I love about the nature of the Scriptures that is constantly brought home to me is their realism. And what I mean by realism is that the Scriptures don't sugarcoat things for us. They don't try to convince us that we need to see the world through some Pollyanna rose-colored glasses. They don't shy away from the profound fallenness of the world that we live in post-Genesis 3. 
They don't try to round out the, the, the rough edges. We're shown the fallenness of the world around us. We're shown the ugliness of the sin that proceeds from our own hearts, even as those who are a new creation in Christ. Because we have this warring between the flesh and the spirit that we read about in Galatians chapter 5 and we see on every page of Scripture. But Luke is no different in his account here of the acts of the risen Lord Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit through the church. He shows us with great realism how fallen even the leaders in the apostolic period are. And the way he shows us this is through this, what the ESV has translated, sharp disagreement that arises between Paul and Barnabas over the appropriateness, the wisdom of bringing John Mark with them on what will become Paul's second missionary journey. And what I want us to see in the midst of all of that, that sharp disagreement in which Paul and Barnabas actually sin against each other, is this all-important truth that Luke is relentless to make clear to us in the book of Acts. Jesus will build his church no matter what. The gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's mission to take his church and cause them to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Not even the continued fallenness and sinfulness and pride of his people. As a matter of fact, Jesus is so great, so powerful, so gracious, that he actually works through their sin to bring about that great end. Now, it's important that I qualify right off the bat. That is in no way an endorsement of sin. That's not a church strategy. Let us sin so that Jesus can build his church in the midst of our sin. Listen, we hate our sin as new creations in Christ. And yet Jesus is so powerful that he works even through that to build his church. And Luke makes that abundantly clear to us by recounting for us this historical event in which Paul and Barnabas disagree. And so what I want us to see this morning by way of an outline to help us sort of have some hooks to to hang our jackets on, if you will, are these three dramatic movements in Luke's retelling of the disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. Three movements. First, we'll look at the plan that Paul and Barnabas come up with to visit the churches that they had originally planted in Acts 13 and 14. We'll see that in uh, verse 36. Secondly, we'll look at the problem that arises as Paul and Barnabas enter into this sharp disagreement over John Mark. We'll see that in verses 37 through the first half of 39. And then lastly, we'll look at the progress that Jesus brings about, even in this sinful situation through these fallen leaders... Um, so that his church is continuing to be built. We'll see that in the second half of verse 39 to the end of verse 41, and that will close our study of the 15th chapter of um, the book of Acts. And again, what we're going to see very clearly if I do my job well is that Jesus is building his church. Even when the top leaders are divided, 
in their sinful pride, which shouldn't surprise us, should it? Shouldn't surprise us that once again we see Jesus is the hero. Peter's not the hero of the book of Acts. Paul is not. Barnabas is not. It's the resurrected Christ. So let's look first then at the plan in verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, if you recall from the previous section we looked at in Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas went back to Antioch to communicate to the church there to the decision that the Jerusalem council had made in, concern, in regards to this false gospel that some Jewish brothers were teaching. And they were unanimously opposed to it, shot it down with the authority of Almighty God himself, and also said that the, there's no place for the Mosaic law anymore. The Gentiles don't have to submit themselves to that. And so Paul and Barnabas are then sent for, by the church in Jerusalem to go back to Antioch and communicate that to the church there. They do that and they stay there and they teach and encourage the church. And while they're at Antioch, Paul turns to Barnabas and says, you know what? You know all those churches we planted that we pray for constantly? All those believers, those Gentiles that we saw turn to Christ in droves by the power of the Holy Spirit as we preach the gospel? Let's go back and see how they're doing. Because there's a high likelihood that they have, may have been infected or effected by this, uh, exposed to this false gospel that the Jewish brothers were teaching. And they also want to go back and deliver this letter and the decisions the Jerusalem council made and say, listen, the Jerusalem council, the church in Jerusalem stands with us. That gospel that you received when we preached it to you Gentiles, the Jerusalem council says that's the true gospel, not this false gospel that you've heard from those Jewish brothers. And so this is their plan. Their plan is to go back and visit these churches and encourage them and strengthen them with the, the word of the Lord. And what we see here very clearly in this desire on Paul and Barnabas' part is the true heart, pastoral heart, of every gospel minister. Every gospel minister who's called by Christ through the Holy Spirit in the context of the local church longs to care for the sheep, for the flock that Jesus laid his life down for, shed his blood for. And so the love and the care that gospel ministers are to have for the flock are to be a representation and a reflection of Jesus' own care for the flock. Because you notice Paul and Barnabas are going out of their way to check up on these churches, to check up on the sheep, to check up on these flocks, these churches that Jesus has birthed by the Holy Spirit through the proclamation of Paul and Barnabas. They're going to have to be uncomfortable. They're going to have to leave their families and their daily routines, put their lives in danger so that they can go and care for Christ's sheep. And you see, that's the heart and the desire of every gospel minister. And so let me apply this in a couple different ways. First of all, if you're a gospel minister here this morning, which I know there are at least a couple, and I'm preaching to myself here, 
This is to be our heart, brothers. We are to love the flock, even at great cost to ourselves. And we are not to point them ultimately to ourselves, but to point them to Christ as we minister the triune God to them in his word. That's to be our heart. And if that's not our heart, we are to repent and beseech our triune God to do that in us, to give us Christ's heart for the church. Second of all, if you're a member of Sovereign Grace, this is what you are to expect from us, brothers and sisters. You are to expect that we will love you and care for you, go out of our way to make sure that you are doing well. Now, that's not to say that that's not a two-way street. You keep running away, you just make our our job harder and harder. Most of you don't run away, but some of you do. It is a two-way street, but we have this responsibility. And every true gospel minister feels that burden and that joy all at the same time. And so that's what you need to expect of us. Thirdly, if you're not a member of a church and you're here visiting this morning, as you go to various churches, this is what you are to be looking for in the pastors there, the elders there, the deacons there. Do they care for the souls of the sheep that have been entrusted to them by Jesus, who is the good shepherd. You, you have to be there for a while to be able to see that. Don't try to make snap judgments. But this should be one of your top priorities. Now, obviously, every gospel minister fails in this, right? We could go around the room and you could give various testimonies of how I've probably failed you for more, to one degree or the next as one of your shepherds. And yet this is, I can tell you with a clear conscience, this is my desire and my heart for you. As imperfectly as it's communicated, and I can say that on behalf of all of the elders here at Sovereign Grace. But we have this beautiful picture of the pastoral heart of every gospel minister. And here's the thing, don't just lose your your focus on Paul and Barnabas. Understand that the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen and ascended king is the one who by his spirit has put that desire in their hearts to care for the church in this way. And Jesus is still doing that today in his church as well. So on the one hand, we see in the plan, the pastoral heart of Paul and Barnabas, the clear working of the spirit in them, King Jesus by his spirit working this in them. But then on the other side, we see that there is also the flesh at work in the midst of all of this as well. Isn't that how it works for us? Isn't that what Paul says in Romans chapter 7? I have a desire to do good, and yet right there nipping at the heels of that desire is this this sinful, selfish desire as well. Because we're what Martin Luther calls at the same time both sinners and saints. Saints in Christ, sinners in the flesh that we still continue to, to be in. Not that it has dominance, but it's still present and active. And we see this dynamic in Paul and Barnabas. And so let's look then at the sinful side of their desires as we look at the problem, because really those sinful desires are what give rise to the problem. Let's look at that at verse 37 through the first half of verse 39. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Now, this is not the first time we've been introduced to 
John Mark in the book of Acts. You remember in Acts chapter 13 and 14 when Paul and Barnabas were called by the church in Antioch, really by the Holy Spirit, to go and proclaim the good news to the ends of the earth. Paul's first missionary journey, they took John Mark with them. And so John Mark came, and what happened though? In Acts chapter 13, verse 13, Luke doesn't give us the details. All he tells us is John Mark left. He took off. He said, they're in Pamphylia. He said, I'm going back to Jerusalem. Now, we, we can only speculate as to why that was. Was he struggling spiritually and so he needed to leave? Was he, uh, was he realizing, hey, this whole missionary thing is, is just sinking me? I, 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 I'm homesick. Maybe I'm physically sick. Maybe I'm not healing as quickly from the beatings that we're experiencing. I, I don't know exactly what it was. We can only speculate. But Luke makes it abundantly clear that he left. Now, we can imagine what a big deal this is, right? Can you imagine if we sent out a missionary with some of our other missionaries, and while they're out on mission, one of them, for whatever reason, we don't know what it is, bails and leaves? Now, can you imagine if it was recommended to us that we send that person back? You better believe, from my perspective, I'm going to have some serious pause. Now, why, why do I say that? Why is it so significant that John Mark bailed? Because Paul um, brings up this objection in verse 38. But Paul thought not best to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. This is why it's significant that he bailed. He bailed on the work that the risen Christ had given us to proclaim the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth. These Gentiles who were lost and without hope in the world. And John Mark bails. John Mark bails on this work that Christ had called them to. And so here's the, the, the positions of John Mark and, I'm sorry, Barnabas and Paul. John, uh, uh, Barnabas is the what? Son of encourager. He says, let's give him a second chance. By the way, he's also, don't put too much stock in this, but we know from Colossians 4.10 that Barnabas and John Paul, uh, John Mark, John Paul, where's that coming from? John Mark are, are cousins. They're related. So there's a familial tie there. There's a blood tie there. And he says, let's give him a second chance. Maybe he's privy to the growth that he's experienced since he bailed when they were in Pamphylia in the first missionary journey. But this is Barnabas's heart as a pastor. Let's give him a second chance. The Lord is patient with us. Let's be patient with John Mark and let him come. But what's Paul's position? He defected in the midst of the work. He's a quitter. He didn't persevere. He didn't endure. Barnabas, he's not qualified. How can you recommend him? How could you say that, that he should come? We know Paul's attitude in his approach to ministry when he says to Timothy, in his second letter to Timothy, chapter 2, verse 3, he says, you are a soldier of Christ Jesus, so be ready to share in his sufferings. And listen, Barnabas, says Paul, John Mark didn't do that. He wasn't willing to suffer with Christ. And so he should not come on this second missionary journey. Now, if you're tracking with me, the congregation should be split right now on who they would have sided with. 
right? Wait, there's warrant to, to what Barnabas is saying here. Shouldn't we're all about grace? We know God is gracious and patient with us. Why shouldn't we show that grace and patience to John Mark? And yet on the same side, we can see where, where Paul is coming from in saying, no, shouldn't come, he's disqualified. I don't know where you fall on that. Luke doesn't tell us who was right or who was wrong because in one sense, they both had a point and were right. And in another sense, because of their sinful, prideful stubbornness, they were both wrong. Because what do we see? How does, how does Paul, uh, Luke, in verse 39, I've got too many names floating around in my head. In verse 39, how does Luke describe this disagreement? He says there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. This was not a cool, academic, intellectual, distant conversation in which the arguments were shared back and forth. This conversation had sharp edges. Passions were involved in this. And we can surmise, and the language in some way leads us to this conclusion, they didn't have this conversation once and then move on. It was a conversation they had quite a few times. And they were cutting each other, not literally, but with their tongues as they were having this conversation and this disagreement to the point that, think about this, they separated over it. They split. Now, this should shock us in Luke's narrative. Why should it shock us? Because of Paul and Barnabas' history. You recall, and if you don't, I'm going to help you remember, in Acts chapter 9, when Paul, shortly after he's been converted and is trying to, um, to get into contact with the upper leadership of the church, the, the Jewish brothers in Jerusalem are terrified of Paul. This is a guy who's gone around killing the church. We don't, we don't think we can trust him. How do we know he's not being a spy? Who comes alongside of him in Acts chapter 9 and gives him a shot? It's Barnabas. When all the other brothers are afraid, Barnabas comes alongside of him and says, listen to what he has to say. What about in Acts chapter 11? When Barnabas is on his way to go encourage the church in Antioch there, who does he take with him? Who does he go out of his way to go get and bring with him in Acts chapter 11? The Apostle Paul. So we see the heart of Barnabas here, and this is exactly what he's wanting to do for John Mark to a certain degree is what he's, want, what he's already done with Paul. They've stood by each other, not to mention the bond that they have as a result of the first missionary journey, both in the highs and the lows. In the highs, they've seen scores of Gentiles be saved by the power of the Holy Spirit as the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ is being proclaimed. And so when you experience that in ministry, there's this this close-knit bond that takes place. I can say that from experience. A brotherhood unlike any other. And as far as the lows are concerned, when they were suffering on the first missionary journey, being persecuted, beaten, probably having to go through terrifying storms, not knowing if they were going to make it as they sailed across the Mediterranean Sea from location to location. You know that when you suffer and you have to lean on somebody else, there's a bonding that takes place there. A deep kinship an affection that grows. And of course, we saw earlier in Acts chapter 15, they've stood together against false gospels. And so here are these brothers, these missionaries, peanut butter and jelly, Paul and Barnabas, peas and carrots. 
they're going to split over this? They're going to split over an indifferent matter? This is a wisdom call. It's a pastoral call. Is he fit? Should we, should we do this or should we not? I was reading John Calvin's commentary on this earlier in the week, and he said either one of them could have yielded since it was an indifferent matter. I'm not, he wasn't saying it wasn't an important decision, but it's not a matter of essential doctrine. Nobody's salvation is hanging in the balance. So why don't they yield? Because of their sinful, stubborn pride. They don't yield. Can you relate to that? I can. Think about your marriage over the last week. I think we can all relate to this. And yet what this is showing us, what Luke is showing us, is how toxic sinful pride is, refusing to put another's interests above your own. I'm right. I'm right. I'm going to stick to this. There are times to stick to your guns. We've already seen Paul and Barnabas do that. This was not that situation. But sinful pride is toxic to the unity that Christ has created in his church by his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and ascension. Nothing disrupts the unity of the church like our sinful, stubborn pride. That's why the Lord clearly says in Proverbs 8.13 that he abhors, he hates pride. And we're constantly exhorted all throughout the scriptures to be humble. So let me ask ask this question. How do we cultivate humility? How do we do that? What do the scriptures tell us? Let me give you two, these aren't, this isn't exhaustive, but let me give you two primary ways that we cultivate humility. First of all, we cultivate humility by having a biblical view of God's holiness. The character of our triune God as he has graciously revealed it in his word. An incredible study that I recommend to you is to go through all of the scriptures and to take note of the response of a person whenever they behold the glory of God. And what you will find every single time is that they are brought low and fall on their faces. They kneel down. They're brought to a position of submission at the mere sight of his holiness and his glory. Think of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. He sees the king of glory and what does he say? Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm, I'm coming unraveled because I see the holiness of God and my unholiness in comparison. How does John respond in Revelation chapter 1 when he beholds the glory of the glorified Christ? He falls on his face. He's brought low. He's humbled. So the first thing that helps cultivate humility and put pride to death is a high biblical view of God's holiness. Second of all, having a biblical view of God's grace to us in Christ. Because for our sin and our rebellion against this holy God, who's been nothing but good and loving and wise to us, and to whom we owe obedience and submission since he's our creator and sustainer, we deserve his wrath for that eternally, for our sin and rebellion. We deserve to experience the punishments that our our sins deserve for all eternity, not just for a finite span of time, but an infinite span of time. And yet it was when we were in that state, 
that the Father sent the Son to become a man and live in perfect humility to his heavenly Father in all the ways that we pridefully, sinfully fail to. And then that track record of humility is taken and given to us, counted as our own. And then what happened on the cross? Jesus paid the penalty for our stubbornness, our sinful pride in wanting to not just not obey God, but take his place as God. We want to be God. And Jesus was punished for that sin, that rebellion on the cross in our place so that there's no punishment left for us. What do you have that you didn't receive, brothers and sisters? So what what place is there for pride or stubbornness? There, There is no place for it. Now the ironic thing is, do you see how I just said you cultivate humility? It's not by pursuing humility. Don't try to eyeball humility and see if you're growing in it. It's not going to work. It's as we deepen our communion and fellowship with our triune God and see how he's graciously worked all things to save us that we're brought to the end of ourselves. It's not because of anything in me. And so I'm able to love you as messed up as you are. Put your interest above my own. Because I know I'm just as messed up. But God has graciously saved me. This is how we cultivate humility. And sovereign grace, let us beware of pride and quickly repent of it when we see it. We all, this lurks behind all of our hearts. We can't look at Paul and Barnabas and go, wow, man, I'd never do something like that. Yeah, you would. So would I. And yet, Christ forgives us. So let's be a repentant people. When this pride crops up, let's repent of it quickly. So we see the work of Jesus in their hearts and lives by the Holy Spirit in the plan that they have. Then we see their sinful flesh on display in the problem that arises. And now thirdly, lastly, let's look at the progress that Jesus brings in the midst of this problem and this situation. Look at the second half of verse 39 with me. Barnabas took Mark with him excuse me, and sailed away to Cyprus. So the cousins, Barnabas and Mark, go off to Cyprus. You recall this was the first place on the first missionary journey where Paul and Barnabas went um, to share the gospel, spread the good news in the synagogues, and scores of Gentiles um, and, and Jews believed. And so they planted these churches there. And so uh, Mark and Barnabas are going to go. That's also Barnabas' hometown. So it makes sense for him to go back there. And they're going to strengthen and encourage the churches there. And then who does Paul take? Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So Paul and Silas to go to the other churches that on the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas planted together. So do you see what happened here? Although this is not an excuse or an endorsement of their sin, so don't misunderstand me. But whereas there was only going to be one missionary team going out and caring for the churches, there's two now. Look what good Jesus brought about from this situation. Jesus is building his church despite the sinful pride and actually through the sinful pride 
of his people. Again, the response to that isn't great. I'm really good at sinning, so Jesus can use me to build his church. That's not the takeaway from this. The takeaway is look at how powerful, how gracious the resurrected Christ is. He's accomplishing his promise in Acts chapter 1.8 that the church, the apostles, as fallen as they are, we already know that from the Gospels, and they still are fallen, he will use them to build his church and proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. And he's keeping that promise. What's the takeaway for us in that? Your sin can't disrupt Jesus' plans in your life and in the church. Isn't that good news? Because you know what? We remain fallen in this life. And he uses us as the church to make known the wonders of what he has done. So he only uses sinful fallen people who are at the same time both saints in Christ and a new creation, no doubt, and sinners as well because of the flesh that still clings to us. No one is beyond being used by Jesus. I I don't know who's sitting out there this morning thinking, Jesus can't use me, I'm such a mess. Every Sunday you guys preach the law, you preach the gospel, and I'm reminded, why am I even here? The work of the Spirit is so slow in me. I, I don't see the fruit. I don't see what he's doing. I don't remember the last time I shared Christ with somebody. You need to hear this loud and clear. The Lord Jesus only uses fallen sinners to advance this mission that he's left the church with. So get to it. Don't despair. That's the enemy's work. Focusing on you, focus on him. Look at how glorious your Christ is. It's powerfully at work in them. He's going to be powerfully at work in us. So do you see the progress that Jesus is bringing about in the midst of this sinful pride of these two incredible leaders, one of whom is going to write most of the New Testament and is going to be the focus of the rest of the book of Acts? Paul. Now there's a second thing, though, that we miss if we just stay in this text. You may ask yourself, well, so what happened to Paul and Barnabas and John Mark? Well, the interesting thing is, Luke doesn't tell us how this happened, but Paul shows us very clearly in three or so of his New Testament epistles that reconciliation took place between these three. Let me show you the evidence for that. First, Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. You can turn there if you want to. I'm just going to briefly summarize each one of these passages for you. Paul tells the church in Colossae to do what? To welcome Mark if he comes to you. Doesn't say, hey, you know, if Mark comes around, tell him he's not qualified for pastoral ministry. If he comes around, don't you fellowship with him. You let him know he's a sinner. You tell him the gospel so that he can repent. It doesn't say that. It says welcome him with open arms. Colossians 4.10. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4.11. 2 Timothy chapter 4.11. This is Paul's last letter to Timothy. He's in prison awaiting execution. He knows he's at the end of his life. 
And he instructs Timothy to what? He says, everybody else has abandoned me. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. Why? For he is very useful to me in ministry. Does that not seal the deal? He's useful to me in ministry. So bring him with you, Timothy. We see the fruit of the reconciliation. We don't know how it happened. Did it happen in a letter? Did it happen face to face? That's my guess. Don't have much evidence for that. But here's where the evidence is clear. Repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation took place. Last evidence from the New Testament. In Philemon, verse 24, no chapter markers. Philemon's such a short book, it's only got verses. Verse 24, Paul makes a reference to Mark. In verse 24 of Philemon, he calls him his fellow worker. They've worked together in gospel ministry again. How could that have happened without their reconciliation? And we have to assume the reconciliation with Barnabas as well. So what do we take away from that? I think it's amazing, and I think this is what it points to. This is a wider biblical truth that we could prove from other places, but I believe that the Lord Jesus is going to bring reconciliation amongst all of his people. If not in this life, then the next. I believe that. Now you say, in the next? Yeah. I know people who have relationships that weren't reconciled with other believers, and that is carried to the grave. That's a sad reality. But I believe that Jesus, when he comes back again, will reconcile them one to another. That brings great comfort and joy to me. It's not the main reason I want Jesus to come back, but it's certainly one of them. Now, that reality doesn't remove from us the responsibility to seek reconciliation. What does Paul say when he closes the book of Romans? He says, insofar as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. We have a responsibility to pursue and to seek reconciliation, repenting of our sins, calling others to repent, and being quick to forgive. And here's the thing. We actually see this happen, the evidences of this, in this sharp disagreement that arose because of the prideful, sinful passions of Paul and Barnabas. So let's pursue reconciliation, folks. We're family. Paul and Barnabas and John Mark were family, and so they did. In light of the grace that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had shown them, how could they not show grace and forgiveness to one another? Brothers and sisters, I hope what you see is abundantly, that's abundantly clear here, and what Luke is trying to drive home for us, is that the Holy Spirit, the risen Christ, by the Spirit, works in the church, to build his church through people who are both saints. We see that in the plan, the working of the Holy Spirit in Paul and Barnabas, even as he's at work in us today, and are also sinners. We see that in the problem as they clash over this indifferent matter that one of them should have yielded to the other, despite all the good reasons and rationales they had for it. And yet through that, what does Jesus do? doubles the efforts of the church to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Our sin doesn't trip up the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So let's repent of it. Let's turn away from it. Let's be reconciled to each other and stand in awe of the Savior who's building his church through a bunch of sinful saints like us. As I was preparing for this sermon this week, the hymn that kept coming back to me was The Church is One Foundation. The Church's One Foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is His new creation by water and the Word. From heaven He came and sought her to be His holy bride. With His own blood He bought her. And for her life He died. The church shall never perish. Her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those who hate her, false sons within her pale, against both foe and traitor, she ever shall prevail. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. Till the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are overwhelmed by your gracious dealings with us. If we have not been reminded of our sins throughout this week, as we've gone through your word, we pray that you would do that now as we approach the table, and yet that we would quickly look to Christ and to stand amazed Not to sit and wallow, but to say, such a one as I is who Christ uses to build his church. So may we cling to Christ, flee to Christ. He is our great hope, not us. May we not get tripped up with focusing on ourselves, but focusing on our all-powerful, risen, and ascended Savior who loves us dearly, the cost of his own life, and who has united us with himself by his spirit, by grace, through faith. Oh, Father, use your word to strengthen your people, to give them boldness, to rest in your love, and to be on mission with the work that you've left us with until you come back, Jesus, or you take us home to be with you in death. We ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.